1: Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. Subscribe to SupChina's daily access newsletter to keep on top of all the latest news from China from hundreds of different news sources. Or check out all the original writing on our site at subchina.com. We've got reported stories, we've got editorials, we've got regular columns, as well as a growing library of videos. And of course... Podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim people in China's Xinjiang region, to China's ambitious efforts to eliminate poverty. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I'm Kaiser Gore coming to you today from my home in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Joining me from Nashville, Tennessee is a man whose viral TikTok dance videos have catapulted him to unimaginable fame, a fame that he has cleverly parlayed into massive sales of his own private label ivermectin diet supplements uh, that man of course <laughs> is jeremy goldcorn aka mean you mean you are an inspiration to all of us and and how you have time to do all of this and still be on a podcast is I'm, I'm just i'm flattered and i am honored to have you on the show sir greet the people won't you
2: hello people <laughs> yeah no it's you know when you live in tennessee they 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 give you the instructions to selling horse medicine uh when you move here it's part of the deal. Excellent. You get a pickup truck and um, horsey wormer. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, so, Jeremy, there are times where I feel a physical distance from Beijing really acutely, and I've probably never felt it more than I do right now. I mean, it is clear to me, even at this, you know, this distance around the world, that that you know, and I think we've seen this for some time now. There are major shifts currently underway. They are impacting many different facets of life in China, from you know politics to the pocketbook. Uh, but without being there on the ground, without being able to talk directly uh, and discreetly, I hope, with people from different walks of life, in different industries, with different priorities, and just to, to sense the feeling in the air and the energy, it's just been really difficult for me. And I think I, think I speak for many of us to get a perspective on on all it's happening, how, how big of a deal it all is, whether our theories on how all of this and what this is, we'll get to in a second, of course, how it all fits together, how our theories stand up and how it's been received. So what I want to do in the next hour with you and with our guests is to get an idea of how it all fits together, what the big picture really looks like. Something major is clearly going down. I think that we all want to understand the what, the how, and the why of it. In other words, What's the deal with the Red New Deal?
2: Yeah, what is the deal with the Red New Deal? And is it a raw New Deal? Um, It might be a good idea for us to run through a quick list of all, or at least some of the major regulatory actions and crackdowns that have been going on beginning, uh, I think we would date it as a lot of people would in October last year when the Ant Financial IPO was pulled. Uh, And Ant Financial, of course, is the Alibaba-affiliated fintech company. There have been a lot of actions like that. Fines on companies including Ant's parent, Alibaba, and on the titanic food delivery company, Meituan, for monopolistic practices from the State Administration for Market Regulation is one major one
1: yeah the cac you know the cyberspace administration of china going after dd after its ipo and pulling the app off of app stores over data security concerns
2: there's also been talk of the government taking a stake in some of the companies uh, you know possibly uh, in terms of financially it's a it's a token 1% but it's representative of some kind of control that the government wishes to exert over the powerful social media companies ByteDance and weibo are most prominent among them
1: Right, right. And that actually dates back to, I mean, before I left China, when I was at Baidu, you know, that was already sort of in the air.
2: That was in the air, but that's come back like a lot. Of, I mean, many of these things we're talking about were in the air in some form or other, but they've come back with renewed vigor.
1: Yeah, now now it's in the lungs and in the bloodstream. Of course, there's that, you know, basically lethal blow to the whole edutex sector, especially to private tutoring, you know, companies like New Oriental and Intel, uh, which, you know, they've said they have to reconstitute themselves entirely as not-for-profit companies. VIP kid can no longer use foreign English teachers to teach online. Uh, and it's not just these after-school tutoring and test prep companies that are in the firing line. Uh, our business editor, Chu Chang, has been uh, reporting this week about new regulations and government moves to uh, reduce and control the whole private school industry.
2: And of course, games. The government is going after games with oh, yeah. a suite of oh, different yeah. moves, uh, the most famous among which you know, came out last week, limiting playtime Uh, to basically three hours over the weekends and on holidays, just an hour a day on those days, with strict real-name registration requirements. Now, that's for under-18s, but there's all kinds of other moves against gaming companies going on, and you have state media editorials uh, calling gaming a form of opium. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I've been addicted to that opium. I know. Uh, there, there have also been major moves that have, have impacted other forms of entertainment. They've been going after these toxic fandoms, you know, for celebrities. That so they're like banning these pai Bang, these popularity charts. They're uh, targeting high-profile celebs for for. Different unpatriotic behavior. Uh, there's even these bans on these so-called sissy men on the screen in this weird, sudden reassertion
2: of kind of heteronormative standards. And uh, they've gone after celebrities uh, for tax reasons as well. And uh, there is some indication that that might extend to all kind of anybody rich. Uh, some of the communications coming from Xi Jinping and party documents. Uh, are talking of, uh, see himself mentioned, excessively high incomes, uh, which needs scrutinizing from the taxman uh, and, uh, and others. Right. Um, there's also been moves that perhaps aren't as controversial, such as the new personal information protection law, which some see as a good thing. You know, it's similar to what GDPR in Europe does, but much stronger and will be used by the government for all its usual purposes, good and bad. Oh and let me add algorithms and artificial intelligence uh seem to be uh coming in for some scrutiny now too. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: And so I don't think this is an exhaustive list but you know even while all of this is happening there are some seemingly important concepts some slogans some phrases that have been introduced not all of them are entirely new but they're showing up with increased frequency in Chinese media. Uh the most prominent and probably most widely talked about of course is common prosperity or 共同富裕. There are others of course. And we will discuss some of those.
2: And as we discuss it, I think we need to hold two ideas in our head at the same time, which is notoriously difficult. Uh, The first idea, Xi Jinping is indeed a ruthless, powerful leader who has systematically neutered or crushed any threat to his and the Communist Party's rule, and he will continue to do so. But his government is also trying to achieve social goods, such as reigning in the power of internet companies, paying gig workers a fair wage, fixing an unequal education system that privileges the urban elites above the rural working classes, and making billionaires pay their taxes.
1: And, and maybe trying to get people to have more babies, too. I think that's another For sure, uh, for sure. We, we should keep in mind some of these other possible motivations for all this. They're, I mean, they're factors-
2: probably looking at Texas with some envy right now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, yeah, these factors that combine in, in different ways. Um, but to your point, Jeremy, you're absolutely right. Much of this does come from what I think many people in China and maybe even many outside observers would say, especially those on the political left, they would see this as coming from a, a good place. Uh, that's why I think we've been talking about this inside sub-China as this Red New Deal. Uh, some of this really does seem to be response to the excesses of neoliberalism, uh, to, you know, Tang Ping or lying flat and, you know, this this whole idea of this resistance to the 996 work culture and all, all of that. Uh, But obviously, it's not something that, you know, liberals or progressives in the West are all going to celebrate, especially because it's, you know, so shot through, as I've said, with homophobia. Um, It doesn't really have in mind the the good of the oppressed Uyghurs or other people and is, I think, in many parts just still being justified by a national security rationale that mirrors in many ways uh, some of the uglier American responses. So anyway, uh, joining us. To pick through all of this are an old friend and a new one. The new one first. Lizzie Lee is an economist turned China politics journalist and commentator who received her doctorate from MIT in 2019 and has since been just an incredibly prolific producer of China news programming. She's on a personal mission to counteract all of the nonsense out there. Her channel is amazing. It's called Uh, and you should definitely check it out on YouTube. It's just this new stuff on there constantly. She's also got quite a number of, for our, our non-Chinese speaking audience, uh People who uh, who speak English. She's got a lot of them, including I think, yeah, well, there's one with me. Uh, <laughs> oh no,
2: <I> <laughs> that was a mistake. Anyway, I know. <laughs> Lizzie
1: Lizzie has also started writing just flat out terrific pieces for sub China. I'm really glad to see, including like, oh, there's a great profile of the new Chinese ambassador to the U.S. Xin Gong. There's an explainer piece on what happens at the summer Beidahu Conclave, and most recently she's done this piece on the CDIC's graft probe. In in the city of Hangzhou and in Zhejiang province. So she is deeply knowledgeable about Chinese politics, and we're very, very lucky to have her. Lizzie, welcome to Seneca. We are such, such, it's such a delight
2: to have you.
0: Great to be here, Kaiser, and thank you for that generous introduction.
2: And Lizzie, may I just say um, that I wish every writer that wrote for SubChina had your uh, attitude to deadlines. Um, you're amazing at um, delivering great work on time. It's a pleasure. Well, thank you. Um, And the copy comes in so clean. It's great. Well, thank
0: you. That's one thing I got from grad school, um, my previous life as an economist, because I learned, you know, the value of deadline. Well, but thank you for pointing (laughs) that out. That's the one thing I got from my five years PhD program.
2: That well, that, he- that that that's good. Maybe that's what I should recommend to young journalists <laughs> when they ask for advice. Oh, no. Anyway, let's. Uh, we're running long, so let me get on to our uh, second guest joining us for, I think, the sixth time. The euphoniously named Jude Blanchette, Freeman Chair at CSIS, the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Jude is the author of China's New Red Guards: so The Return of Radicalism and the Rebirth of Mao Zedong, and the host of the uh, Pekingology podcast. Uh, by CSIS. He's written about the very topic we're discussing recently for foreign affairs. Jude, welcome back to Seneca. So great to see you again.
3: Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you, Kaiser. And great to join the virtual stage with Lizzie today.
2: Yeah, yeah. Let me, let me start off with one of the
1: big questions, Lizzie. Um, are all of these things that we've talked about, these disparate regulatory actions, actually all part of some larger, coherent whole in your mind?
0: So, I mean, I might be a contrarian on this, but I actually think it's more helpful to tease out the different regulations and different policies piece by piece. Because, you know, if you're bent on finding a common denominator, inevitably it boils down to something like control, reducing diversity. And I actually think, think, you know, for an informed audience like this one, that's less helpful from, from the point of view of understanding what's actually going on. I would just raise one example. We usually think of the economic policies as a giant piece, but polling N Group's IPO is actually very different from polling DD's IPO. And the, the former is more about, you know, reinstating monetary control, so to speak. While the latter seems a case of regulatory disarray, uh, with uh, you know, sort of different bureaucracies fighting each other, missteps, misinterpretations, misunderstanding. So the kind of implication, motivation of that two pieces are actually very different. And even for Jack Ma's own business empire, um, the the crackdown on Ngroup Group is is very distinct from the crackdown on Alibaba. Hmm. You know, the, the latter is more more or less in line with the West's scrutiny on big platforms like Amazon and Google. So you know, I actually think sort of finding you know looking at the individual pieces and you know sort of deep deep diving into the motivation and the structure of that piece of regulation is more important.
1: But they're all happening at the same time. What, right. what, what, what explains that?
0: So that's a great question. And um, So in terms of timing, I actually think many of these pieces have been delayed due to the pandemic. Because, you know, when the pandemic hit China, the priority seems to be pre- uh, preserving growth. Um, and many of the, the the regulations tend to be growth dampening, at least in the short term, and growth promoting in the long term. So I think the pandemic actually pushed back the calendar of these regulations for for at least one year. So now we're at a point when we have a, kind of a backlog of the issues to solve. So this might be a time to, you know, clean up our backlog a little bit and tackle those issues head on. That's just my
2: personal interpretation of this
1: pent-up regulatory demand.
2: Right. <laughs> so to speak. Um, Jude, do you agree with that? And do you have any theories about how these different things fit together?
3: Yeah, I, I very much agree that there's a uh, finding a, a unified theory here for all of the regulatory actions, which some folks are, are doing in a you know post hoc manner when all of a sudden the patterns are crystal clear. Um, I agree that that, that's a good way of of looking at this, but I guess where I might differ uh, slightly with Lizzie is, I think the, and Kaiser I think said this in his his intro, the the key question for us is not why this regulation or that regulation. I think we can intuit the underlying drivers and a lot of these make sense and indeed overlap with some of the same discussions that other countries are having about data security, um, about environmental regulation. I, I, the thing I'd circled in my notes was, it's it's the question of why now? Why right, right. now? Why two months ago? And I, I was talking with Barry Naughton the other day. And Barry said something, which is, as soon as he said it, it, it clicked for me. He said, you know, a lot of people think it's at a party Congress where you get these huge inflection moments. He said, but in fact, it's often about a year before Hmm. When the when the entire twentieth party, when a party congress process really starts to kick into gear, and of course the most famous example of this is 1992 with the Nan Xun Deng's trip down south, which was very much about the lead up to the 13th Party Congress, which happened the next year. And I think Barry's supposition was uh, supported by the recent announcement of the sixth plenum, which will be occurring in uh, in November. Uh, 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 the sixth plenum is is Oftentimes about history and ideology, but it is also the, the the party congress plenum. It's when you start really begin planning that process, and so I think there's a as is often the case to me and in, in when you see sort of movings in China, there's a the Occam's razor is often it's about, you know, political calculations and bureaucratic incentives. And and in this case, I agree with Lizzie. I think there was a, you know, Xi Jinping had a lost year last year. And so there certainly was a sense of urgency, but that doesn't really explain to me some of the ham-fistedness behind the regulatory measures, some of the ways in which it was clear that these were not well thought out regulatory measures, which had sort of been shelved for the time being and then pulled out. It was clear, you know, CAC and SAMR were racing ahead in ways that MIT didn't know about and poor Feng Xinghai gets, you know, rolled out to try to explain what's going on. Instead, I think there is, we have officially entered the 20th Party Congress season where you start to have an added sense of urgency in the system. And critically, I think Xi Jinping is now starting to really push forward and create momentum behind some of these ideological and regulatory issues. And it's clear as well to me that something like a common prosperity, what we're really seeing is, is the emergence of what will be the theme of the Party Congress next year. It'll be about uh, this, this great. Big grand social agenda where, where common prosperity will be the macro theme.
1: Yeah, you know, uh, just just to ID Barry notton really quickly. You know, he's a, a very eminent economist of China. He's at UC San Diego. I suppose that's where you got to know him well, right? When you were
2: down there, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, Barry. He's been observing
2: he's- party conferences since like the late seventies, I would imagine.
3: And just to you know, so I, what I just to clarify, I don't think this means there's like a power struggle going on. I don't think this means, but, but I do think you know, Xi Jinping ultimately is the head of a massive bureaucracy, which you know, he is now starting to really kick into gear. Next year's Party Congress is not a normal Party Congress. It is truly going to be a historic event. And so I think that's why we may see an added level of kind of urgency in the system right now.
2: Jude, in your foreign affairs piece, you describe uh, Xi Jinping as a man in a hurry, and you suggest he has an overarching vision for what he wants China to look like. Is that one way of seeing a unifying logic here?
3: Yeah, I, 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 to some extent, I, would, I think so. And I think you see some of these macro framings like socialist modernization, which are essentially creating frameworks to drive policies such that you get a political system 10 or 15 years from now which has really solidified, you know, party control, which, has, which is steering resources into priority re- sectors that are going to be critical for China to overcome domestic challenges like the middle income trap, as well as compete and survive in, in an increasingly frosty, you know, external environment.
2: Right, I guess right. where I
3: to argue against my own piece a little bit, Um, I do think, though, I'm not sure Xi Jinping has this kind of master blueprint that's tacked up on the whiteboard in Zhongnanhai that he is now kind of moving all the chess pieces. I think this is a little bit, he knows his basic orientation. He knows the critical challenges that China has to overcome on the demographic piece, on the productivity piece, on the political control piece. But I do think as he looks out 10 or so years, the first few years may feel uh, a, a definite and concrete, I bet it gets pretty hazy after, you know, after about the three or four year mark.
1: So, yeah, it's interesting. We've already heard a couple of alternative explanations here, sort of pent up regulatory demand. We've heard of the, you know, sort of the, the compelling logic of the political calendar, you know, that this happens a year out before a, a, a major party congress. And I suppose, you know, you've ta- flicked a little bit at this of so bureaucratic competition, uh, that they all want to sort of show each other that they have teeth. You know, hey, we can't let those guys at Guangdong get all of the glory. We Wenhua guys have to do something too, right? Um, uh, is this, is that, I mean, is that, is that a fair take? You think there's regulatory, I mean, there's bureaucratic competition as, as a piece of this?
0: Right, I actually think that's one of the crucial pieces to understand Hmm. in all this. And let me just remind this audience, remember in 2015, I believe, the China's market regulator at that time issued a report saying many products on Taobao was, was fake. What happened then was Alibaba threatened to file a complaint. Jack Ma himself actually flew to Beijing and met with then head of the State Administration for Industry and Commerce. And later that day, the regulator removed the report from the website. I so remember, ep- yeah. Right. So that episode actually spoke to how weak those kind of, you know, uh, sort of kind of mon- monopoly or fake product watchers are that were back in those times. And I think Beijing's initiative to bulk up the State Administration for Market Regulation, SAMR, actually came earlier this year. So that was quite recent. And... That came as China revamps its competition law, etc. So those agencies are agencies who used to be very weak, but now gained tremendous power. And I think it's reasonable to, to conjecture that there's some sort of, sort of internal sorting out going on, trying to figure out what's the best way to do things. They are, they are using power they didn't they didn't have previously, and that would you know lead to Sometimes missteps, sometimes misunderstanding, and sometimes just bureau, uh, bureaucrat—you know—infighting sort of between different bureaucracies. And I think this, you know, sort of perfect illustration of this is actually the case of DD. Um, you know, if you remember, so when DD's IPO was pulled, the data security law was not actually not put into place. So CAC, the ministry, so the, uh, the the bureaucracy. in in charge of some of the security issues, or actually have been fighting with MPS, the Ministry of Public Security, for years over who has authority over uh, what we call uh, CRR, so cybersecurity review regime. And from what I read from uh, media reports and also from my understanding from people directly related to DD, you know, CAC basically proposed a self-review procedure to DD. but Didi misinterpreted that as a sort of optional review process instead of a compulsory piece that has to go through before IPO. So that led to, you know, that was sort of the beginning of the debacle that happened later on. And, you know, Beijing has since sort of moved to sort of staunch the loophole in the in the regulatory procedure. But that incident told me that you know there there's some there's some there's a little bit of mess messiness going on in inside different uh you know different bureaucracies administrations and I think that sort of spoke to the the, the you know the complexity of those all those issues.
1: So, so Lizzie, even though you and, and to some extent you don't seem to see, uh, an overarching theme to what's happening here, some people in China do. Uh, there was this guy in Hubei, a retired newspaper editor named Li Guangman, uh, who wrote this WeChat post that then went viral. I mean, he's, he wasn't anyone, you know, famous or any, I'd certainly never heard of him before, but, uh, some describe it as, as a, you know, a dadzbal, a big character poster, and he referred to this as a profound revolution. Um, maybe we can recount what what it was that Li Guangman meant when he said this, and and what he was asserting in that post. And then Jeremy, I'd love you to talk about the reaction to, you know, because Li Guangman's post was criticized by none other than, you know, the ordinarily highly nationalistic very deeply read editor of the global times Hu Xijin. so can you break down what happened first Lizzie, about you know this li guangman post
0: sure so yeah so um if you remember the li guangman post is hyper uh, nationally talk about profound revolution return to the red roots se hui gui so i think you know when that piece came out on the web and it was sort of uh, republished by many state media outlets the reaction was was pretty fears but you know more established minded advocates of reforms they tend to you know view that piece as with alarm which I think is is correct but then one of the you know one of the, the one of the more uh, nationalistic uh, media commentators who sit in the editor-in-chief of Global Times chastised uh, those arguing for a revolution basically suggesting that all oh, that kind of fast and loose rhetoric only served to arouse on comparisons to previous years of Cultural Revolution, so how do we actually understand that? I actually think when the state media outlets republished um, Li Guangman's piece, the the one important thing many tend to neglect is that that piece was not published in paper, not published in print. It was hmm. it was only published across all the websites and subsequently
2: so, deleted from many of those state yes, media. Outlets.
0: Yes. Yeah, so what's that all about? My personal take is that there was some low-level state media editors who didn't really understand the the you know how to get the tone right. Because there's a sort of a delicate balance of whether you go too far versus whether you don't go far enough. That piece seems convincing, eloquent, seems broadly in line with, you know, this theme of common prosperity and the crackdown on celebrity. So they push that piece out, publish it, but the reaction was more. Um, you know, was was worse than than they uh, they they anticipated. And actually, I think South China Morning Post had an, an exclusive article on this, uh, quoting sources from Beijing media outlets saying that received direct from the, the the administration in charge of those propaganda outlets that they you know, they should try to balance that piece out with milder pieces to sort of to stem the, the the influence of that Li Guangman piece. And mm. I think that's why the Hu Jin piece came out because Hu Xijin is clearly much more knowledgeable about how propaganda system works and how that, um, how to find the, the correct balance of tone. Um, so yeah. that's my understanding of, of what actually went on. He,
2: he perhaps may also not particularly enjoy somebody else getting the foreign media spotlight as the attack dog of the Communist Party. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> that's also true. <laughs> In the media business, you can often attribute what seems like something big to the most petty of motives. <laughs> yeah, all, right.
1: It's all ego, right.
0: Right, but... Can I just add, uh, like add one more thing? Sure. It's actually not the first time we saw this kind of, you know, ultra-nationalistic kind of scary pieces coming out on state media. If you remember in 2018, there was this commentator, Wu Xiaoping, which is basically yeah, an unknown yeah. blogger. Uh, he wrote a piece saying that the private sector should be phased out gradually, basically, as the private sector has accomplished its historical mission of achieving growth. And that blog also went viral and was, you know, republished by, by many, um, you know, official media outlets. So that was even more scary than Li Woman's piece, if you ask me. But he got
1: singled out by by Xi Jinping though for praise. Jo- mean, that, Zhou that Xiaoping, are we further. talking
2: about Zhou Xiaoping? So this is a different Xiaoping.
1: Ah, okay. Getting my Xiaopings confused. So
2: that's Wu Xiaoping because there was also a Zhou Xiaoping. Oh no, much earlier, maybe the very early years of Xi Jinping, there was a Zhou Xiaoping who was a kind of right, a right. similar character.
1: Uh, okay. Okay. <laughs> right.
0: So, so I mean, the Li Guangman piece is significant, but this is definitely not the first time when we when we you know saw kind of a you know hit piece went viral, and the um you know the reaction was was sort of more fierce, than the editors originally anticipated in that piece sort of got silenced and and taken down. In the case of Wu Xiaoping, if I remember this correctly, it was actually Wu Jinglian, um, the the pro market Chinese economist, who told a conference when. Liu He was present. That we've we've heard some unharmonious voices condemning private enterprise. The phenomenon is worth noting. So when Wu Jingling came out and said that, I think people kind of you know interpret that as oh Wu Xiaoping is not does not represent the official line on private sector. So I thought that was an um, that was something to to add, you know, in case we we forget Wu Xiaoping, our blogger. <laughs>
1: So, um, some might argue also that the party leadership is often, I mean, I think you're, you're, you're basically saying this is often, you know, more reactive than proactive. You know, we're not seeing a grand vision for a new era, but a bunch of ad hoc responses to a lot of disparate issues. I mean, you look at how family planning was implemented and then lifted. That was all reactive, right? Um, so the senior leadership now sees like these over leveraged loans by fintech companies. And so it pulls financials IPO and cracks down, as Lizzie was saying, it sees a groundswell of complaints against overwork. And hyper competitiveness. So it declares 996 illegal. It goes after the tutoring. And, um, you know, a lot of this, the reaction is going to be conditioned, obviously, by, uh, their ideology, by what they're used to. You know, Xi Jinping, he's a child of the Cultural Revolution. So he reaches for tools that he finds in, in the familiar Maoist toolkit. Um, but, you know, so I think there's, there's, there's obviously a bunch of different facets to this vision. There's a socioeconomic facet that he answers with, Maybe common prosperity. There's this political one that he answers with, you know, uh, nationalist chest beating and, and, you know, improved surveillance and security. And there's this cultural component also that he answers with, you know, and with this obsession with virile men. Um, but, you know, how much of this is being driven, do you think, by ideology of, you know, of responding to these, these, these exigent circumstances? How, how much does ideology play into that, Jude? Do you, do you sense?
3: Yeah, if I I, I just uh, tack on to to connect the two with with what Lizzie was just saying, I, I just wanted to maybe build on a few points because I think um, the Li Guangman. I, I guess I had a slightly different take on it, um, and and try to connect it to the question you just asked. The bar for deleting digital pieces in China's propaganda system is is uh, is below my big toe, right? It's very very low. And the Li Guangwan piece, I'm looking at it on the Guangming webao website right now. So it's still up. And it's been taken down by some, but it's still up on some. Whereas the, the uh, Zhang Weying... And Wei-ing, Guangming,
2: one should perhaps say, is a, that's a serious
3: publication right, exactly. that's, yeah, a, yeah.
2: that's a central party-controlled organ.
3: And the, yeah. the Zhang Ying, you know, the Beida economist, kind of market-friendly economist, uh, wrote a piece in response that has been subsequently scrubbed. Um so if this really if there was a real repudiation by the propaganda authorities, Xi Jinping is certainly aware of Li Guangman by now, or or those under him are, and yet it's still allowed to persist. And I think the other point I wanted to make is you know um if you actually read the Li Guangman piece, I actually think there's a sensible take he has of of interpreting the velocity and and direction of events. And while there's a little bit of clear neo-Maoist spin on the ball and a little bit of naive hope that a, quote, profound transformation is coming, nonetheless, it is the case that the neo-Maoists are looking what's happening right now under Xi Jinping and saying it's finally happening. So <laughs> I think we have this really nuanced external take of, you know, well, it's probably a low level propaganda official and you miss, you know, they kind of they were misreading the signs and, and no, this isn't. But then, of course, you listen to people in the system on the left who, you know, I've been following for a while, and they're, they're pretty excited about this. You know, as the Li Guangman piece says, you know, the Communist Party is finally returning to its origin, original intent. And, and the final comment I wanted to make is, you know, if this piece had come out in 2013, it wouldn't have got any press, right? It's getting press now, not because anyone knows or cares about Li Guangman, but we're in this profound moment of uncertainty about where China is going. And where Xi Jinping hmm. is taking the country. And so that's why the Li Guangman piece has resonated. Even if I think all of us can sit here and no, the Cultural Revolution is not coming back to China. No, you know, the Communist Party still wants capitalists pouring money into the economy. They're still deathly afraid of, of foreign investors leaving. Yes, 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 and yes. But still, I think this piece is resonating because I don't think, I certainly don't know where China is going under Xi Jinping. Um, uh, especially now that power is being centralized. And the fact that we're having this conversation is because all of us have been watching what's going on over the past couple months and totally scratching our heads about how far does this go? What's next? Is there, is there an ideological reorientation occurring at the senior most levels of the party? I think all those are open questions.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: I, I mean, I think um, to an extent, Lizzie, you 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 played you uh, you said you were contrarian, right, at the beginning of the show, and in some ways, mm-hmm. it, it, it's taken the wind out of Kaiser My sails because I think we've premised this whole show on the idea that there is a connection uh, right. uh, between everything. That doesn't mean we shouldn't tease out the individual threads, but uh, right. to 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 return to the connection, um, uh, Kevin Rudd gave a speech at the Asia Society uh, just this week, uh, on the 8th of September, and he laid out his idea of what tied this all together. So he also sees it as a, you know, a a set of things happening in some kind of coordination. He called it the red thread, um, which uh, red communist red, obviously. Uh, It boiled down to turning away from the private sector uh, and toward the state. Um, Lizzie and Jude, what what did you make of that argument?
0: So I mean, my honest answer is, I honestly don't know what to make of it because, you know, I think for for someone like me, when you make an argument, I would like to see some citations and quotations and your your line of logic. Um, that strike uh, you know the the, the uh,
2: and Kevin uh, the, the Rutgers Rudd Rutgers. didn't didn't put any citations in his at least so in so that the strikes base.
0: me as mm. a grand theory of things, and I kind of see that as a framework. But in order to convince me your theory is actually correct, I would like to see more. Um, you know more sort of concrete evidence of why um, you know just, just be scientific what's a what's the falsifiable uh, you know hypothesis and what are the evidence against it versus uh, supporting it so that's sort of my brand uh, my grand take on that but hmm. um, I, I should say you know Kevin Mr. Cameron Kevin uh, obviously knows China more than I do so that's just my personal take on that.
1: Well, that's being very modest, but I'm not sure of the validity of that. Jude, what about you? What did you make of? Kevin's? Yeah, my
3: my first impression was was um, uh, I thought this had the uh, appeal of being a grand unifying theory, but as I dug into it, I had a similar impression to Lizzie's. Um, um, there were components of it where um, I just disagreed, and I think we mentioned over email. One of them was just an interpretation of of what he was describing as a core central plank of Xi Jinping's new economic framework, which is called the new, the new development concept or the new development right. philosophy, um, where I, I, we've done a fair amount on this. You know, there is quite a, there's a documentary trail of the Xi Jinping laying out over this past five years, what the new de- development concept or philosophy is. And, and it, it, it didn't overlap with what um, uh, Kevin Rudd's you know, speech said um, in a pretty profound way. And the other thing is, I I actually, when I was a, a few paragraphs into it, was excited to read what the red thread is, what is the grand unifying theory, and never really felt like I got it. Because the elements he was describing, rise of the state sector, industrial policy, we could have had this, we could have done this podcast a year ago, and I would have had the same exact, we would have been talking about, you know, made in China 2025 industrial policy, the um, you know, uh, the rise of the state sector, the party asserting more control. Th- those have been, of course, occurring you know, since e- even post- before Xi
2: Jinping, the the, the first time the. Uh, uh, Guo uh, tui that kind of. Definitely. You know, but I, but, yeah. but
3: even even in the kind of amplification under Xi, I mean, th- these are trends which have been, I think, the dominant trend since 2015, 2016. So the kind of what's different now, um, I didn't feel like I got to this. It, it, saying that at the core, the new development philosophy, the ideological core is more party control. I thought that was an interesting take, but it differs from mine because, again, 24 months ago I would have told you that the key dominant ideological plank for for Xi Jinping is core party control. The new development concept is is a different, and actually I think a a, a different interpretation of it by uh, Kevin in the speech would have actually gotten us a little bit closer to understanding common prosperity. Because when you unpack the new development concept as it's been articulated in speeches and in documents. You know, it's about uh, innovative, uh, more shared development. So a development that crosses, that's more regionally distributed, more regionally, more distributed between urban and rural areas. Shared development, they call it. So income inequality, green development. So, uh, you know, uh, development that doesn't come at the expense of, you know, not GDP over the environment, what they call open development, which is more about that sort of remaining uh, integrated in the international economy, but as things like dual circulation indicate, hedging a little bit against um, you know fears of being cut off on supply chains. So um, uh, anyway, so I, I think it was a really interesting take on it in terms of it's it had a really high level look at it. Um, but I still I'm still in the same page of after reading the speech, still not being entirely sure what, what the kind of unified theory of, uh, of action the, the, from Beijing The needle is.
2: hasn't been red-threaded properly. <laughs> right, um, right, right. But uh, to Kevin Rudd's point, I mean, there is obviously a huge economic component to all of this. <laughs> and, um, I mean, it makes sense to me to connect this with dual circulation, which you just mentioned, Shuang uh, Xinhuan, which is a kind of party speak for... Basically, making China have a more robust domestic economy and being less dependent on the outside world, but because everything's win-win, you also have this component, and it's a dialectic, you know. So there has to be another component of the outside world, um, but it's not just move against IPOs on American stock exchanges. I mean, there, there's evidence of this attitude. Perhaps you could call it maybe in the moves against english requirements in school which were just reported this week uh and crackdowns on foreign online uh, english teaching uh, do these are these connected is this decoupling is this dual circulation
1: yeah i mean i think just to me to add to to, to jeremy's question here and maybe clarify it a little bit you know rudd talks about these Three things that have triggered all of this, right? In his, in his grand theory. I, I, and I've actually thought the same thing. That there's the trade war, right? Uh, there's all these moves by Trump to kneecap China's tech capabilities. And then, you know, there's the COVID pandemic that exacerbated every pre-existing stress in U.S.-China relations already. And then there was, you know, Beijing's realization that things are not going to get a whole lot better under Biden and that, you know, decoupling is kind of the order of the day still. It's going to go forward. That, uh, competition is going to be the watchword. Uh, and that you know, the ideological chasm is not gonna you know narrow ma- magically. And maybe this is why Beijing is like flexing its state capacity muscle right now. And there's this new nationalism which we've talked about on this show, you know, the one that's more rooted in confidence, maybe you know, hubris, even uh, the one that says not just like, um, oh, you're you're uh, it's not the def- the old defensive nationalism of oh, you're you're being biased against me, but rather sit down and shut up. I have something to tell you. I mean, Does it feel like I feel like Beijing this is my my sense is that Beijing feels like it's got a lot of, you know, political capital banked. It's got a lot of, you know, regime support banked, and it feels like it's time to break some eggs and make this, you know, new type of omelet. That's 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 my sense of it, Jude.
3: I think I think that's correct. I mean, I think the coming off of last year, which we had mentioned as kind of a lost year for longstanding agenda items, but it was a game year for Xi Jinping insofar as you know, he comes out of it with, I think, a newfound sense of of um, pride in the capa- you know, the mobilizational capabilities of the political system to overcome a significant challenge like COVID-19. I think the second critical factor, though, is, you know, growth rebounded quickly last year um, and there's strong growth right now. And so I think there's a feeling like we've got popular support and we have the growth momentum or growth window to really sort of push ahead on on some of these areas. And I think, you know, Andrew Batson at Gavgal Dragonomics uh, gave a presentation the other day I thought was really good, where he was saying, you know, there's another fundamental shift underway where I think, you know, he thinks Xi Jinping is willing to take a hit on short-term growth to tackle problems which are going to deliver long-term growth. Now, that's always been this hard tension or trade-off in the system, and and it's not going to be perfect even under Xi Jinping. Sort of short-term exigencies still matter a lot to the Communist Party, and it's oftentimes you know, willing or or, or, or um, you know sort of gets in its own way over longer term objectives because it panics and, and feels like it needs to put a floor under you know under growth. But I think that sense of, okay, we've got some we've got some time and we've got some support to make some aggressive moves here is is clearly in the calculation. I think what will be mm-hmm. interesting looking forward though, and, and and we may not know this for a few years, you know, this critical debate of is the heavy-handed approach right now especially targeting the private sector and the tech sector. What are the knock-on effects of that? I think Beijing thinks there are not going to be knock-on effects because it's not going after robotics companies or kind of deep innovation companies. It's going after sort of this kind of consumer tech, which frankly, Xi Jinping probably, he doesn't care if you get your meal delivered 16 seconds faster right. you know, over a food, you know. So I think he finds these kind of effects you know bourgeois technologies, which are frankly probably sucking up capital technology and talent that he would rather be redirecting towards the kind of deep innovation technologies which are going to power national security and growth over the long term, but that definitely is a gamble. He might be right, maybe there is no knock on effect to innovation, uh but maybe there is and and we probably won't know for some time
2: yeah, yeah yeah yeah, so um <laughs> The Cultural Revolution is used by frequently by foreign commentators and even uh, by younger Chinese to basically mean something bad that happened a long time ago before I remember or you know, that I don't know too much about. And uh, so you've seen comparisons in, in the media of what's going on right now in China to the Cultural Revolution. Um, and, you know, I, I generally will pour scorn on that kind of comparison because I think it's just meaningless. But what I think you can detect, you know, and again, Lizzie, you may, you know, completely disagree with this this premise. I think you can detect a certain way of doing things that, uh, you know, would be very familiar to a, a Communist Party member in the 50s. Um, you mean campaign style stuff? Yeah, campaigns. And they may or may not be executed under the direct command of whoever's leading a particular department. But there is a uh, there is a a certain kind of movement that's built. Uh, It involves language. It Mm -hmm. involves slogans. It involves multiple organs doing different things. Does that make any sense, Lizzie? Do Do you think do you see a kind of campaign style politics going on? You mean like the kind of thing that makes
1: billionaires give up a whole bunch of their profits voluntarily?
2: Yeah, landlords yeah, yeah. handing over their property. Exactly, exactly. exactly.
0: So, yeah. So, I mean, there's a similarity there, but I think fundamentally the campaigns we're talking about right now and the campaigns during the Cultural Revolution are fundamentally different, right? Um Mao attempted to destroy the Communist Party, bombard the headquarters, and we saw Red Guard zealots
2: basically on the street, you know. You know what, let's let's talk about the 50s, rather, if we're going to compare, because I, I, mm-hmm. I really do think, I think the Cultural Revolution, it just puts everyone on the wrong way of thinking about okay, everything. Right. Um, Nobody uh, serious is making those comparisons, right? Yeah, I mean, that was kind of my point in bringing up the cultural revolution. But, but I, I think it's the campaign mentality. And I I, I, I mean, to me, what it, it smacks of more is the f- 1950s, not actually the cultural revolution. Uh, so mm-hmm. that would be the question I guess I'd ask you is.
0: Right. So I would point out sort of one key difference I see. So I think what she sees on economic, economic matters, we see party control, we see an increasing role for state. But if we read from Xi's, you know, actions, especially during his early earlier uh, Zhejiang years, he's very different from from like leader from the 50s in the sense that he wants to redirect the energies of, of entrepreneurs, not eliminate them as a class. And I think you know, the, it's it's correct to say that the emphasis now is on state control. But Xi's focus is very much on sort of aligning the entrepreneurs' uh, priorities with what the party wants, redirecting their energies into what he thinks more productive activities. And, you know, a sort of a counter example to that would be uh, see the the crackdown on celebrity incomes. That's what we call unproductive income. So that income is high, but it's mostly for accumulating personal wealth rather than, you know, reinvesting into the society to, to, you know, to, to profit more as opposed to see an entrepreneur's income. And that, you know, celebrity income is something that's targeted. So I think, we see this force to redirect, but not eliminate. And I think that would be sort of the, the key difference um, from, you know, between what we see now versus what we see in the 50s. But I do agree that the kind of fast and loose rhetoric, the kind of fierce, um, you know, sort of mass campaign on a certain issue, I do, I do see the resemblance there, but I don't think it's, it's correct to sort of make direct comparison between the two, uh, two eras.
1: Lizzie, uh, in a piece that you wrote for us recently, you cited approvingly a paper from Angela Huya Zhang at the University of Hong Kong, um, and that was called Agility Over Stability, China's mm-hmm. Great Reversal in Regulating the Platform Economy. And that's a really interesting paper. I mean, it looks at structural reasons why regulatory actions tend to be just so sudden and so heavy handed and why it produces so much volatility in China. Um so I guess I'm, I'm wondering, is this how the party's always been? Or do you think that this is particularly pronounced during the Xi Jinping period?
0: So I do think the way China approaches these problems reflect a newfound confidence in the sense that, you know, the, the kind of reforms that's currently going on in, in China right now reflect the confidence that China can solve its problems through its own system. We don't need to follow the model of the West which is, you know, depicted as decaying right now.
1: Right.
0: And, you know, from my perspective, the way China does things, the heavy-handedness, the clumsiness, you know, has this um, this feature of trial and error. It's not a well-thought-out approach based on previous examples. It's kind of, you know, look at how the different sectors react and then decide what to do next. And, you know, if so, so you know, usually when... Um, when we when we d- devise a piece of economic policy, we think of uh, think about the different players. I mean, almost by definition, an economic activity involves at least two parties. So if you you know strike on one party, the other party will be affected, and to the extent that that activity is related to the labor market and broader other sectors in the economy you want to take into consideration other potential effects but i think right. that kind of systematic thinking that's so common in western style policy making is absent here um it's it's you know it's kind of like 头疼, yi疼, yi jiao. so you know oh this is a problematic piece <laughs> and let's just go ahead and strike that so i, I mean it's like what is this all about? Is it, it it's a lack of deliberation or you know if it is after a careful deliberation, Beijing still decides that this is the best way to do, best way to go, you know, there's really no reason for us to to worry about international investors. Those people are just you know not part of our consideration. that's a, that's a question that I don't really have a solid answer to.
2: Dude, we haven't uh, talked much about how investors are reacting to this, and I think this is very much worth uh, discussing. So the actions against Ant Financial, against Alibaba, Didi, uh, they have really spooked uh, some investors. Not others, uh, but many are spooked. Ray Dalio famously is not. Uh, <laughs> Ray Dalio. But recently, the People's Daily uh, uh, leaders like Leo seem to be trying to walk back uh, a little bit, some of the apparent harshness of the the different crackdowns, and to assure investors that uh, the private sector is important to China's economy and that the country is going to encourage entrepreneurs. Uh, What's your sense? Will this actually placate investors?
3: No. (laughs) But I think the the inverse of that, which is our investors fleeing, is also, uh, I'd answer in the negative. I think there's a profound sense of anxiety right now about, and that's why there's such a determination by investors to to discover the ultimate logic here, because then at least there's some predictability. And of course, after the EdTech crackdown, you saw a whole coterie of analysts coming out and saying, Well, she told you, he said it in a speech in 2018. Uh, So then there was this two week period where everyone was scouring the speeches of Xi Jinping to find out what the next sector. Uh, which was going to come under crackdown, which uh, I was telling people at the time, um, anyone who who, who was uh, seeing this uh, in advance uh, would have already retired based on the extraordinary amount of money they would have made shorting these stocks. But I have yet to see that person emerge. So this is a, right. a case of finding a pattern after the fact. But I do think China's walking I think there's a a line that they're walking. Um, On the one hand, financial services is is probably the bright spot in terms of where you'd look for policy liberalization. And of course, you've had prominent investment firms, hedge funds, basically say, we're doubling down on China. Simultaneously, you have had some VCs and investors pause or exit the market um, at the margin because they feel like the domestic churn and regulation right now, combined with U.S. pressure, you know, on a kind of financial decoupling agenda. And now that we're seeing both Beijing and the US um, uh, focusing on capital market regulation, whether that's the VIE structure in Beijing or on the the US side here, concern about, you know, uh, about uh, uh, companies listing on uh, US equity exchanges mean that there's just, even if you're comfortable investing into volatility, there's just too much uncertainty now. So I think that's why you've seen Beijing, folks like Feng Shanghai uh, at, at at CBRC come out and try to essentially calm the market and let them know, don't worry, we're not we're not moving against capitalism. This isn't a cultural revolution. Um, but I think you know Beijing and DC both have a best in the brightest problem right now. Um, yeah. I think both think they are so smart they're going to be able to uh, get what they have their cake and eat it too. Um, but investors have a vote here, um, and so I think this is going to be a this is going to be a tricky one for regulators to to, uh, to navigate.
1: So Lizzie and, and Jude both. I mean, with all of this talk of common prosperity, uh, as we've suggested, some people are, are imagining uh, a return to Marxist roots, a return to the red roots. In your mind, does this thing that we're calling the Red New Deal is there a chance that this spells the end of the bourgeois mode of production? I mean, are senior party people? I, know, I think this is, this is very far-fetched, but our senior party people thinking now that capitalism has, as, as your neo-Marxists like to say, fulfilled its historical mission, uh, to produce, you know, the material abundance that we were promised in Das Kapital. And it's now time to get back on the path toward real communism. I mean, Jeremy, you know, we've been talking about this, but if it does signal some kind of return to ideological roots, does this really mean that, you know, the party was truly marxist all along and that this has always been in the plan or was it ever the case that the party leadership has just been guided by you know pragmatism it has just been muddling through and improvising just doing whatever it can do to maximize wealth and power and yeah sure there are some ideological commitments that are going to induce them whenever it's you know possible or convenient to reemphasize marxism um but for the most part they're just making it up as they go along <laughs>
0: Right. So, I mean, the short answer is I don't think that's, that's a valid, you know, valid idea. And what I would point out is just, you know, if we look back, um, probably more almost 10 years ago in 2013, when Xi Jinping released his blueprint for China's economic reform, the bullet points are actually quite consistent with what we see right now. What are the this bullet This is the, the
1: third the third plenum of the of the 18th Party Congress.
0: Right, right. right. So you know, emphasis on domestic consumption rather than right. exports and investment as a pre- as a principal driver of growth. Mm-hmm. The enhanced role of party and uh, SOEs in private sectors. And third, I think it's uh, you know kind of a directive to leapfrog the West uh, in critical new technology sectors. So you know, my view is there's much more consistency and. Sort of logical, logical, uh, you know, sort of heritage across all Xi Jinping's approaches, and I don't think we we are seeing sort of a sudden return to to the Marxist route. I think that's sort of a, an exaggerated view on on what Xi Jinping is doing now. Yes, there are certain moves that didn't happen back in 2013. Um, you know, COVID didn't happen back then. The trade war didn't happen back then. But I think Xi Jinping's vision on the economy was pretty clear from, from from that 2013 document. I still refer back to that document when I see sort of new development in the Chinese society and Chinese economy and see whether that was consistent with that. And I, I honestly don't don't think there's sort of a dramatic turn in recent years. I think Xi is pretty consistent in his focus on party, on uh, SOEs, mm, mm-hmm, but also mm-hmm. in his focus on, you know, making China a strong economy, sort of mobilizing private sector to serve the purpose of the state and the, and the, and the party. I honestly don't think he's, he's going to return to like you know, the fundamentalist, communist way of approaching the economy.
2: So Lizzie, it also sounds like to me what you're saying is that though you don't think there's really a lot connecting all the different crackdowns we're seeing going on in the last you know, let's say two months, particularly, right. and the ideological uh, debate—that uh, those things aren't really connected. In some ways, they're all the fruit of what is, in fact, a very big and strategic plan and way of a strategic way of thinking about things that Xi Jinping ha- has announced quite plainly right from the very beginning.
0: So, I do think Xi has his philosophy on how to approach the economy, and I think it was—it pr- was—it was even clearer back in his days in Zhejiang and in, in Fujian, how he views the private economy and his relationship with the government. I think she's consistent. What changes was back in the back in his times in Zhejiang, he was in charge of a state, uh, sorry, he was in charge of a province. And the growth of that province and the effect of GDP growth on his own personal, uh, you know, his career trajectory, sort of that's the, the the priority for Xi Jinping. But now he's the leader of the country and the country happens to be in this, you know, sort of multi, multi-faceted war with the United States. So the country is um, is much stronger than when uh, Xi inherited the reign of China from Hu Jintao. So I think his objectives are different and his priorities Necessarily change, but I think his underlying philosophy is still consistent. And if I can add to that discussion a little bit, I think there's also another thread of Xi's philosophy, which I think commentators tend to overlook. Um, You know, we hear Xi quote Marx all the time, but Xi also quotes Confucius all the time. And I'm not talking about, oh, Xi is this sort of heavenly mandate, you know, emperor of China. But Xi does seem very paternal you know i think she has this idea that he's the grand custodian of the country he knows what's best for the country and what's best for the people you know when we talk about the the crackdown on on gaming the crackdown on you know feminine actors i think that's that's what's going on here i can honestly see 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 as sort of the you know the, the biggest tiger mom of the of the of the chinese society. oh my
1: god you that is so exactly what i have been thinking uh that's i mean it's 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 just like Just like my dad, my super serious, highly moralistic, avowedly egalitarian, but, you know, pretty socially conservative dad, at least before my brother came out and he got a lot more awoke about, you know, sexuality and gender issues. I mean, he was like censorious about the TV we were allowed to watch. He was like disdainful of anything that he thought was frivolous. He hated video games. Kind of like she would let things get pretty badly out of hand and then he would crack down on a whole bunch of seemingly quite unconnected issues, right. this is something that I, I've seen a lot of people with Chinese roots right. comment on. On um, this kind of peculiarly Chinese form of, of righteousness, of moralism, in in a, in a very authoritarian manifestation. Um, th- that, that that sounds so right to me.
0: <laughs> a patriarch, a proud yeah. patriarch. Can I just add one anecdote? Xi Jinping as know, Tiger Mom. Is that
2: how right? you <laughs> know?
0: Well, you know, at least um, so. Well, maybe, maybe. Well, you can you can edit this out if you don't want to to let this air. But Xi Jinping's daughter actually overlapped with me a little bit, and when when she was in college, she, she was an undergrad at Harvard, and I was also in Cambridge. So Xi Mingzhe is is very normal. She, Xi Xi Minzo is also very much into the fandom culture. She has she has her you know celebrity favorites and, and stuff. So in that regard, I think Xi Jinping was not that successful in you know sort of you know, being the tiger mom of, of of his own family. But you know he's a, he's he's a patriarch of of China. That's just one anecdote I will add.
2: Oh, it's a lovely one. I'm
1: glad we got that one in there.
2: <laughs> you may wish to leave this out, she says, Lizzie. Right, that's... right. no. We're going to run not. that on, on on a continuous loop, that sound bite. Um, yeah.
1: As I was saying at the beginning of the hour, I get really frustrated that I don't get a clear sense of how Chinese people are taking this all in. So uh, from what you guys can tell, I mean, Jeremy, you, I would love to hear, you You know, you've got your finger on the pulse. You, you're always doing this sort of Vox Poppy stuff. And Lizzie uh, and Jude, you know, what has the reaction been from, from China at different levels of society? And Jude, you know, I'll ask you because you're the elite politics guy to talk about at the highest echelons of the party. You know, is there some kind of consensus about all this or are there clear signs of any kind of fracture? Jeremy, why don't you go first? What, what, what's your sense just talking to people? I mean, our colleagues, you know, we have we have colleagues in China. I mean, they've been telling us what they're hearing, right? I,
2: I think I, I get two takeaways. I think, uh, as has characterized uh, uh, um, Xi's rule right from the very beginning, there is quite a lot of good feeling about the things he's doing. Uh, you know, business people think that Uh, Like they do in America, of course, that the tech companies have too much power and, you know, that they're abusing us. A lot of people, I mean, we've covered a a great deal of social media anger. Jiayun, our our society columnist who writes a lot about social media reactions you know, many Chinese people are angry that these internet companies exploit their workers. You know, and I could cite numerous examples. For every crackdown they do, the education uh, system and and the pressures on on families, financial and, uh, you know, every type of pressure because of the problem of education. All of these things uh, are connected to uh, popular discontent about one thing or another. And I think because of that, They probably, uh, to the average person, if I may, you know, venture to speak for 1.4 billion people, perhaps don't come off as sinister necessarily as they might do when summarized in a headline in the Wall Street Journal or by yours truly. I'm not uh, saying I don't, you know, make things sound, you know, different from the way a Chinese person would perceive them when I write. Uh, But I think you'll find quite a lot of popular support for much of what is going on. Um, I think there is also uh, anxiety because what the fuck is going on, you know?
1: Lizzie, wh- what about you? What do you think? Does it sound about right to you?
2: So, yeah, in
0: general, I think that, that's that's correct. I would just um, sort of point out to one example, which I think is pretty representative of all those, is a crackdown on private education. I think that's a case that illustrates the popularity as well as the potential problem of this crackdown. You know, when, when it's, you know, so I think, I think Xi Jinping was right to identify sort of the, you know, the extremely stressful education system as a main sort of point of grievance for many Chinese families. And when the crackdown on private industry was first initiated, actually many parents welcomed that, as well as many students. But things changed a little bit later on because people realize that the rat race is still going on. The kind of fierce competition from early childhood to middle school to high school, bootstrapped all the way to marriage market and the housing market is still going on. So I think that's why we saw those, you know, nannies with PhD degrees in, in physics, uh, you know, popping up on, on job market. I think it's, it's, you know, the <laughs> loopholes emerge as soon as those measures are initiated. And, you know, that loopholes create a new sense of anxiety. Are we smart enough to jump all the, you know, to jump across the loops and figure out how to get our kids and, you know, a private tutor when everybody is saying they're not doing it, but they're still doing it. So I think that's a new source of, of anxiety created by the crackdown probably as a an unintended consequence of that. So I think I still need... Time to see how this all goes and whether it's successful and whether those loopholes can be, you know, can be identified and 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 sort of uh, shut down before they they create a new um, you know black market of of private tutoring, and I think that's um, that's a one one case that I I tend to focus on. And also, um, you know, speaking speaking with my parents who are you know Chinese university professors, they actually welcome that because. It's you know it's crazy when you, when you think about it but you know according to them Chinese kids are so burned out in high school once they get into college they basically stop studying at all it just, you know, playing games and, and, you know, surfing the internet all the time. And that is so frustrating for college professors. So when we, so when they saw, you know, private cracked yeah. crackdown, they actually welcomed it because they think the kids will, you know, will have more energy to study in college, which they think is, is more important for their f- future career, which, you know, you might not agree. But I feel like uh, that's an interesting comment from my from my parents' first-hand, uh, you know, uh, experience with those kids.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's telling that they sent you to the United States to do college, so... <laughs>
0: Right. right. They they just yeah they just don't want to see me anywhere near them. I guess.
1: Uh, I can't imagine that's true. Anyway, Jude, what about at, at the elite level, Jude? What, what are you hearing? You know, and with your interlocutors, uh, who are maybe more attuned to what's happening within the, the higher echelons.
3: I think the the global environment for China, especially the the perception that you know China is being increasingly encircled is undoubtedly giving tailwind to xi jinping and i think that's that's privately likely his value proposition as he positions for a third term as general secretary is you know uh, the the world is dangerous now is not is the time to keep a steady hand at the tiller Um, i'm the one who's going to steer us past the reefs and i also think as he's you know making these regulatory waves we're, we focus on the losers, you know, the Jack Maws, the Pony Ma's, the, the folks who are being rectified and, and giving, quote unquote, you know, voluntary contributions. But of course, a lot of people win when you have a reallocation of assets, especially as they're being extracted from the private sector and moved into state and quasi-state institutions. So there are certainly winners here. But I think there's also a profound sense of unease about where things are headed now, mm. and even if we just talked about why the historical metaphors don't capture this, um, I still think, nonetheless, there is a there is a, a subtle um, narrative that Xi Jinping is driving too hard, too fast, and and potentially at the risk of undermining some of the you know elements of, of, of international goodwill and national power. And so I think that that is likely to persist certainly over the next year or so through through the twentieth Party Congress. But on a final note, you know I think. This, this old heuristic of kind of looking for disaffected officials who are going to rewrite the ship. You know, this, this is like, you know, imagine if there was a third term of Donald Trump, you could be looking around for who in Treasury is upset with the direction of policy, but it wouldn't matter, right? Right. Um, it, Donald Trump would be calling the shots. And I think, you know, I think that's what we're dealing with here. There's, there's no one of, of any significant power in the Chinese political system who, even if they were pissed off, at Xi Jinping could really do anything about that, and that's just the kind of linear iron law of political consolidation. Um, that the, the logistics involved in trying to shift or challenge Xi's policy trajectory are so extraordinary.
1: Well, Lizzie Jude, it's been just such a pleasure having you both on the show. I oh, wow, Lizzie, I'm I. I, I... It's going to be hard for me to resist asking you to be on every show now because you have so much good stuff to say.
0: Well, thank you, Moner.
1: Anyway, I look forward to revisiting this topic in, in just a couple of months. We are, it, we've we invited both of you to speak at our next China conference on November 10th. Uh, by the way, that conference is just going to be star-studded. Uh, we've got just great stuff, including a live uh, podcast with none other than Peter Hessler. Uh, and that's going to be on November 11th. It, hopefully, you know, uh, Delta Willing, we're going to be doing that on the 11th live. Uh, but we're going to update this conversation, uh, in November and maybe delve even, you know, more deeply into some of the issues that we've just raised. So I, I really look forward to that. I, I have a lot to think about between now and then. Uh, Lizzie, it's been really very stimulating to hear your contrarian view. And I, I think that, There's a lot to it. There's an awful lot to it. Thank you so much. Yeah. It was a delight. For now, let's leave it here and move on to recommendations. But first, a quick reminder that the cynical podcast is powered by SubChina. And really, the thing that we need you all to consider uh, is whether you can spare a few bucks to support the work that we do by signing up for SubChina Access, our... Daily newsletter that that Jeremy and Anthony and Lucas and Jiayun and Chuchang and all of our wonderful editorial staff put together every day. It is a one-stop shop for all the vital news out of China you need every day, and it is great value for money. So contact us if you are interested in group discounts because we've got you know a lot of universities and embassies and NGOs and and companies that have uh, group discounts, and that's a really great way to go. Just uh, Jeremy at subchina.com or or go to the source Alex A L E X at subchina.com if you're interested. Okay, um, on to recommendations. Jeremy, kick us off, man. What you got?
2: So very quickly, New Voices is this great podcast by the New Voices Collective. Uh, we first interviewed them on Seneca way back when, Kaiser. Yeah, 2015 and, or uh, and, something. Like, uh, yeah, uh, about this list they keep of female experts and specialists in various China-related subjects, uh, which they made as an attempt to... Uh, help media companies uh, have a fairer uh, gender representation, essentially. And it's a great list, great resource. So that list, but also a podcast, the last one, sadly, with SubChina. They have started a nonprofit and uh, are need to be independent from us. And uh, we are amicably parting with this great podcast with uh, Barbara Demick, whose most recent book, Eat the Buddha, chronicles the life of a town on the Tibetan plateau. uh, And she was interviewed by New Voices. And I'd also quickly like to recommend a video by Tony Lin called How China's Queer Youth Built an Underground Ballroom Scene. Hmm, That sounds great.
1: All right. Two excellent recommendations. Lizzie, you are up. What you got for us?
0: So um I would recommend my own channel but that's probably too um you know I was going to I was um, going to do that <laughs> uh, but let me just no uh, let me just recommend a book I think many of this audience would already have heard about which is uh, this book by Desmond Shum the uh the ex husband of um, Whitney, uh, yeah, Whitney, yeah, Duan, well, Whitney Duan, Duan Wei Hong yeah. Uh, believed to be a business associate of Wen Jiabao's family, the the previous um, premier of China, it's a fantastic book. If you're into elite politics and if you're into, you know, sort of kind of cloak and dagger style, um, you know, power struggling within the the the, the elite uh, class of China, that's a fantastic read. Um, so so go go ahead and buy the book. I think it's a great read.
2: Jeremy read it. Yeah, I'd second that. It's a really fun read. And it's, yeah. if you were in Beijing in the 90s and, you know, uh, t- first decade of uh, 21st century, it's, uh, it's got a great feel uh, for the city and all the scamming that was going on.
1: Do you show up in it? <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, <laughs> well, <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, thankfully, neither do I. He d- she, he does describe. He gets the name wrong. Um, Jinxing, uh, oh, the really? dancer. Yeah, of course. Uh, yes, who, uh, she had this bar called Half Dream. Yeah, I, I used to go there all the time. Out yeah. In. yeah, and yeah. he he describes it as being a place for. I think he calls it the dishevelled expatriates and demimond of Beijing. And oh, I, I awesome. think I was one of those disheveled expatriates. But um, aside from that, I don't show up in the book. <laughs> oh, man!
1: Well, great recommendation. Uh, I, I uh, read it for I read the excerpt that ran in the Wire China uh, for China Stories podcast. If you want a taste of what that sounds like, uh, you can check that out. All right, Jude, what you got?
3: Well, um actually it builds quite nicely off of the last recommendation because I read the book this week for a review uh that uh that I'm doing for the Washington Post of the book, and simultaneously I was reading uh Milovan Gilas's 1957 book, uh The New Class. You know, Gilas was a, a highfalutin member of the Yugoslavian Communist Party and at one time thought to be a successor to Tito, but then had this very pronounced break. And wrote this book in 1957, which was this, um, uh, the subtitle is an analysis of the communist system. But it was this really extraordinary document breaking apart the pathologies of bureaucratic communism, the ways in which, you know, rent seeking and graft occur, The you know, how you how you leverage kind of grain coupons over the rest of the population. And so I was reading this as I was reading Desmond Shum's book, um, and, and there was so much of Shum's analysis um, uh, about how the party operated, sort of behind the scenes, that was that was that was right on the nose with what Gilas was describing. Um, so anyway, it's for as we're kind of flexing our our you know Kremlin Kremlinologist muscles <laughs> to try to figure out where China's system is going. Gilas's book is just really interesting. You always have to recognize that Communist Party of today is not the Yugoslavian Communist Party of 1957, but some of the ways he describes bureaucratic processes and rent seeking and corruption and graft are 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 Overlap nicely.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Milovan Gilas also wrote Conversations with Stalin, which I read when I was an undergrad. It's also really, really worth reading. Excellent recommendations. Um, so mine are, I got one fun one and one serious one. I guess I'll do it with the serious one first. It's uh, Adam Tooze's new book, Shutdown, which looks at the global response to the COVID-19 pandemic. It's kind of like, you know, uh, it's not a first draft of history, but it's kind of a second draft of history. And it's really impressive just, I mean, in its scope, and in its detail, uh, it's just a tour de force. I'm about like nine or 10 chapters in right now. And what always blows me away about twos is just how he, he has like this big picture historical sensibility, but he combines that with like, up like more than your average bear's grasp of macroeconomics and an ability to explain pretty complicated macroeconomics, you know, uh, and the whole interconnectedness of, of the global banking system, the global economy. Um, you know he's he's drifting definitely towards sort of uh, new monetary policy in his thinking he's He's so like he's more Keynesian than Keynes could have ever Keynes up. Uh, but he's he's an interesting guy, and uh, he's been on our show a couple of times, and i i just love having him on. Uh, his whole take on the outbreak in Wuhan also is just one of the best accounts that I've read in terms of just how you know he just is unflinching. To, he talks about how Beijing screwed up. He talks about how it did buy the rest of the world time that the rest of the world then squandered, and he looks at why. Very interesting. It's very factual and very fair. I I think it's an impressive book. Um. Definitely recommend it, even though I haven't finished it. My fun recommendation is this show uh, on FX. Um, It's on Hulu. is where I watch it. It's called Reservation Dogs. Okay, it's written and directed by, and it, it stars... Like, almost entirely indigenous Americans, and it's very funny. Uh, it's, it's all shot in Oklahoma, uh, and on, you know, reservations there, and it deals very squarely with a lot of the issues that, you know, indigenous people in America face. Uh, it centers on a group of these four teenagers who are, you know, like petty thieves, um, you know, all dealing with their own issues, the gangs and stuff like that. Uh, and they're trying to earn enough money to escape the reservation and go to California, and it's, Lizzie, thank you so much. What a pleasure.
0: Thank you. It's great to be here with you. Um, thank you, Jude. Thank you, Kaiser. And thank you, Jeremy.
1: Jude, thanks, man. As always, it's just such a pleasure to have you.
3: Likewise, likewise. Very, really appreciate and Enjoyed the discussion.
1: Yeah. And Jeremy, as always, man.
2: Yeah. Thank you, Lizzie. Thanks, Jude. That was great. We could have actually go blathered on for several hours quite happily. Yeah, yeah, this, yeah. Uh, I mean, this will do. <laughs> yeah. Right.
1: Okay. Thanks, everyone.
0: Thank you. Thank you.
1: The Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by me, Kaiser Uh Drop us an email at Seneca at com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at China News, And make sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.